Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 5, 2 Kings chapter 4. Well, good morning. As we continue uh, in the book of 2 Kings, Elisha is now firmly entrenched as the most spirit-filled and honored prophet in Israel. Even in the story in chapter 3 of Moab rebelling against Israel, the subsequent attempt by Jehoram, king of Israel, to form an army along with Judah and Edom to put down this rebellion, to retake Moab as as a vassal state, we find the miraculous works of Elisha involved. Now recall that the Israelite army decided to attack Moab from the southern approach, around the bottom end of the Dead Sea, which was through desolate desert terrain. And then after seven days of of marching through the wilderness, they had run out of water. And the places that they had expected to find bubbling springs and and running streams were all dried up. And out of desperation, the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom decided to humble themselves and seek the counsel of Jehovah by means of his prophet Elisha. Now Elisha told them that God would rescue them because he wanted Moab destroyed. They were to dig ditches to be used as reservoirs that God would then miraculously fill up with water to sustain them. A God-ordained flash flood occurred almost immediately upon completion of those trenches. And there was more water for them than they could possibly use now. But this same water that saved Israel's army also proved to be a deadly trap for the Moabite army. The soil of Edom, where they were, was of a reddish hue. And so as the floodwaters rumbled along from the distant mountains where the rain had fallen and the torment was formed, the soil became all mixed in with the water. And as the water gathered in the ditches, the Moabite soldiers who were overlooking the Israelite tent encampment thought that what actually filled those trenches was blood. They assumed that the coalition army consisting of the leaders and men of three kingdoms had turned upon one another and a great slaughter had produced all this blood. Now, such an assumption was by no means ignorant. Although Jehoram and Jehoshaphat were relatives and fellow Hebrews, there was a well-known centuries-old animosity between Judah and Israel. And further, the third party to this alliance, Edom, wasn't a particularly willing partner as they were only there because they had been pressured by Judah and they were only interested in collecting the spoils of war. The Moabite army rushed down to finish off those Israelites who had survived the supposed infighting only to find out the blood was merely a mirage 
and no such slaughter had taken place. Israel fought off their shocked attackers, pursued them until they cornered them in a fortified city inside of Moab. But something so terrible happened at that fortress that it was long remembered in Hebrew lore. Even the prophet Amos Amos spoke of it. Mesha, king of Moab, tried to break out from the siege upon his city in the, in the direction of the Edomite troops, hoping to kill the king of Edom and in the ensuing chaos escape certain death. The Moabites failed, but they were able to capture the king's son and then return to the stronghold with him as a hostage. And on the walls of that city, they offered the Edomite crown prince as a human sacrifice to their god, Chemosh. It had the effect of emboldening the surviving remnant of Mesha's army, but also demoralizing the Edomite troops and striking fear into the Israelite army who broke off the battle and then abruptly retreated back to their homes. What makes this story so important is that it is not merely a record of a military defeat. Rather, it is that God had ordained the destruction of Moab. He told Israel he would give them this victory and thus ordained this expedition as a holy war. But Israel was more fearful of the God of Moab than they were trusting in the God of Israel. Therefore, the leaders of Israel snatched needless defeat from the jaws of certain victory. And Moab would now become a permanent foe and a thorn for Israel rather than being eliminated as an enemy of God's kingdom. It was more than sad. It was sin. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Page 403 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The wife of one of the guild prophets complained to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, died, she said, and you know that he feared Adonai. Now a creditor has come to take my two children as his slaves. And Elisha asked her, What should I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she answered, Your servant has nothing in the house but a flask of oil. And then he said, Go, borrow containers from all your neighbors, uh, empty containers, and don't just borrow a few. Then go in, shut the door with you and your sons inside, and pour oil into all of those containers, and as they're filled, put them aside. So she left him. She shut the door on herself and her sons, and then brought her the they brought her the containers while she poured. And when the containers were full, she said to her son, Bring me another container. But he answered, There isn't another container. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay your debt. Then you and your sons can live on what's left. One day Elisha visited Shunem, 
and a well-to-do woman living there pressed him to stay and eat a meal. And after this, whenever he came through, he stopped there for a meal. And she said to her husband, I can see that this is a holy man of God who keeps stopping at our place. Please, let's build him a little room on the roof. We'll put a bed and a table in it for him, a stool and a candlestick, and then whenever he comes to visit us, he can stay there. And one day Elisha came to visit there, and he went into the upper room to lie down. And he said to Gaihazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And he said to her, uh, he, he called her, and when she arrived, he said to him, Tell her this. You have shown us so much hospitality. What can I do to show my appreciation? Do you want me to say anything to the king for you, or, or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I'm happy living as I do among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gai Chazi answered, There's one thing. She doesn't have a son. Her husband is old. And Elisha said, Call her. And he called her, and she stood in the doorway, and he said, Next year, when the season comes around, you'll be holding a son. No, my lord, she answered. No, man of God, don't lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and gave birth to a son the following year when the season came around, just as Elisha had said. And when the child was old enough, he went out one day to be with his father who was with the reapers, and suddenly he cried out to his father, My head! My head hurts! And he said to his servant, Carry him back to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he uh, he, he lay on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door on him and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please, send me one of the servants with a donkey. I must get to the man of God as fast as I can. I'll come straight back. He asked, Why are you going to him today? It it isn't Rosh Hadesh. It isn't Shabbat. She said, It's all right. Then she saddled the donkey and ordered her servant, Drive as fast as you can. Don't slow down for me unless I say so. She set out and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her in the distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, here comes that Shunammite. Run now to meet her and ask her, Is everything all right with you, with your husband, with the child? She answered, Everything is all right. But when she reached the man of God on the hill, she grabbed his feet. Gehazi came up to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in great distress. But Adonai has hidden from me what it is. He hasn't told me. And then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, Don't deceive me? And then Elisha said to Gehazi, Get dressed for action. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. If anyone greets you, don't answer. Lay my staff on the child's face. And the mother of the child said, As Adonai lives as you live, I'm not leaving you. And he got up and followed her. And Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the child's face, but there was no sound or, or sign of life. So he went back to Elisha and told him the child didn't wake up. And when Elisha reached the house, there the child was, dead laid on the bed and he went in and shut the door on the two of them and prayed to Adonai and then he got up on the bed and lay on top of the child putting his mouth on his mouth his eyes on his eyes hands on his hands and as he stretched himself out upon the child its flesh began to grow warm and then he went down and he walked around in the house for a while and he went back up and he stretched himself out on the child again and the child sneezed seven times and then he opened his eyes Elisha called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came in to him, he said, 
Pick up your son. She entered. She fell at his feet and prostrated herself on the floor. Then she picked up her son and went out. Elisha went back to Gilgal, and at that time there was a famine in the land. The guild prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put the big pot on the fire and boil some soup for the prophets. One of them went out to the field to gather vegetables and came upon a wild vine, from which he filled the front of his cloak with wild squash. And on returning he cut them up, put them in the stew, and they didn't know what they were. And then they poured it out for the men to eat, but on tasting it they cried, Man of God, there's death in that pot! They couldn't eat it, but he said, bring some flour. He threw it in the pot and then said, pour it out for the people to eat. This time, there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God uh, 20 loaves of bread made from the barley first fruits and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give this to the people to eat. And he said, how am I to serve this to a hundred men? But he said, give it to the people to eat. For Adonai says that they will eat and have some left over. So he served them. And they ate and had some left over as Adonai had said. Chapter 4 moves us back to a focus upon the life and works of the great prophet Elijah's replacement, Elisha. Now, up to now, we have tended to see an Elisha that looked an awful lot like his former master, the stern, unyielding, harsh Eliyahu. But in this chapter, we have a series of vignettes that, that demonstrates Elisha's, Elisha's softer and more compassionate side. He aids the destitute, he rewards kindness, he resurrects the dead, and he feeds the hungry multitudes. Hmm. Sound familiar? Of course it does. It's as though for a moment we've jumped far ahead in our Bibles to the New Testament era Gospels and we're reading the stories taken from the life and works of Jesus the Messiah. In fact, especially here and in the next chapter, we have records of what can be called nothing less than gospel stories that prefigure the coming of Christ by at least 800 years. Now these several stories about Elisha are not in strict chronological order. They could have taken place pretty much any time within the approximately 55 years that Elisha served as Israel's chief prophet. We also need to notice that 2 Kings chapters 4 through 8 are without doubt taken from some other ancient and long-lost document that chronicled the works, the works of the prophets from this era. Now, why this was inserted at this point by the author or, or editor of the prophets, um, uh, rather, uh, uh, author or editor of the book of Kings, um, we can only understand within the context of divine inspiration. No other rationale works. Since these stories are divinely inspired, there are, of course, some interesting principles that come out of them. And we're going to look closely at a few of them. Now, the first story is about a Hebrew widow who had become desperate. We're told in verse 1 that she had been the wife of one of the many Israelite prophets. And the rabbis say that she was a widow of Obadiah. 
the God-fearing member of Ahab's royal court who acted to save as many as a hundred of the guild prophets from a massacre at the hands of the evil queen Jezebel. Then from this is told a rather elaborate story about how after he used the last of his money hiding these hundred prophets from arrest, he ran out of funds and he died penniless and in debt, leaving his wife and family in dire straits. Now, I can't say whether this is true or not. This is Jewish tradition. But being tradition does not automatically make the story false. There's far more not written in the scriptures about the 1,500 years or so that the Bible spans than is written. So most of what we know today about the people and the society and their everyday lives from the various biblical eras is all taken from non-biblical sources. On the other hand, it cannot be denied that the rabbis were prone to exaggeration and hyperbole and not outright fantasy in order to fill in some historical gaps in ways that validated their particular doctrines and viewpoints. There doesn't seem to be any need of making up a story about this woman being Obadiah's widow to support some agenda. So I think more likely than not it's true. This Hebrew woman, possibly the widow of Obadiah, apparently had no son who was old enough yet to be seen as the man of the house and able to rescue this situation. So she turned to the chief prophet of Israel, Elisha, for help. Why turn to Elisha? Because he was the head of all the prophet guilds of which she was part. And she uses the typical colorful colorful language of the prophets in telling Elisha that her husband feared Yehovah. Now that was just partly to identify him as a prophet of the God of Israel and not one of the many prophets to the several other gods. Now let me pause to remind you that in all Torah class lessons, past, present, and future, when I use the term Yehovah in a biblical passage, I use it because that Hebrew word that represents God's official name is actually and literally there in the original Hebrew texts. It's there. I'm not willy-nilly substituting the word Yehovah when our English translations typically say God or Lord or the complete Jewish Bible says Adonai or Hashem. What I'm doing is reinserting what's always been there. But has sadly, and I think wrongly, become obliterated and obfuscated. Now the widowed woman tells Elisha that creditors are coming to take away her two sons to be house slaves. Now the situation is this. It's not correct to view them as slaves that have been purchased. They are being taken as bond servants. That is, their labor is the surety for a debt that their father made, but can't pay. This system was common, and every day it was completely allowable by the Torah. Once the debt was paid off by means of their working it off through their labors, or they were released upon the year of Jubilee, the bond servants could return to their normal lives as free men. They were not slaves 
They were not humans owned by another human. Because God did not permit Hebrews to make slaves of other Hebrews. In fact, bond servants were to be treated like neighbors. Leviticus 25, 39-43 says it this way, If a member of your people had become poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him do the work of a slave. Rather, you are to treat him like an employee or a tenant. He will work for you until the year of Yovel, Jubilee. Then he will leave you, he and his children, with him and return to his own family and regain possession of his ancestral land. For they are my slaves whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Therefore they cannot be sold as slaves. Do not treat them harshly. Fear your God. So the widow's fear was not that her sons were going to be hauled off into a lifetime of slavery and degradation. Rather, they wouldn't be there to help her support the family. Bad enough. So in verse 2, Elisha asks her what she has, meaning what she has of value. What she has of value in her house. And she responds that all she has is a, is a, a jar, a flask of oil. Now in Hebrew, this term is asuk shemim. Asuk shemim. And it specifically means anointing oil. It's not not oil for cooking or for oil lamps. And naturally it would be so, since her husband was a prophet. And anointing oil was the main tool of his trade. The great 15th century Hebrew scholar A. Barbanel comments on this passage by explaining some very important characteristics of the biblical prophets. It's that they were either reluctant or they were unable to bring new things into existence from nothingness. In other words, these prophets weren't God-authorized conjurers who created new things from thin air. Rather, by Elisha asking the widow if she owned anything of value, it was so that he could then hold that up to God and ask Him to expand it and grow it. And the principle is that God created nature. He holds all power over nature. And so He wants miracles to occur using natural phenomena even though he has the supernatural power to merely order the natural phenomena to occur upon his commandment. Next, Elisha tells her to go back to her neighbors and ask for as many flasks and jars as they might have. Empty ones. Her neighbors were the other guild prophets because they invariably lived together in prophet colonies. And so they were more willing than regular society to share things. And upon receiving these these many empty flasks, she was to go inside of her home by herself, her sons with her, to shut the door so she had privacy. She was then to take this anointing oil that she owned and to start filling the many empty flasks that her neighbors had given to her from her own flask. Let's be clear. 
She didn't have the large wholesale sized container of anointing oil that she was merely dividing into smaller portions. She had a regular sized jar of oil, whatever that is, comparable to what all the other prophets possessed. Verses 5 and 6 explain she kept pouring the oil because miraculously it just kept multiplying. In fact, she could have kept pouring indefinitely, but she ran out of empty flasks. And when she looked into her jar, there was no more oil. See, there's such great symbolism here, I simply have to speak of it. First, in the Bible, oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh. And when we anoint with oil for healing, we are symbolically applying the Holy Spirit to heal the anointed person. And second, what is being demonstrated here is that as long as there were empty vessels for the oil to be poured into, the oil continued to flow. But when there were no more vessels to accept it, the oil stopped. The God principle being taught here is that there is no limit of the Holy Spirit of God. He can give as much as we can hold. The only limiting factor is the number of willing vessels. The number of human beings who want to be filled up by the Holy Spirit. Now that the widow had many flasks of valuable anointing oil, Elisha told her to go and sell them to pay her creditors. And then she and her children would live on what was left. So however many oil flasks there were produced, it was more than sufficient to pay off all of her debts and give her something to live off of. But notice the sequence. First, sell what she owned. Second, pay off her debts with it. Third, then whatever funds were left were for her own use. Now, particularly in our modern era, especially in the West, when we are at a time of financial challenges, it has become vogue for those who are deeply indebted to blame the creditor. And even to feel that creditors have no right to expect to be paid back because if they're rich enough to loan the money, they're rich enough to lose the money. So you who are struggling ought not to have to suffer to pay it back. The attitude, that attitude, is far from biblical principles. It in no way resembles what's being taught here. These passages show that if we are in debt and find ourselves with no means to repay, then we begin by selling what we have of value. Then the next order of business is to use those proceeds to pay off our debts. And if there's anything left, then it's ours to use. Notice that there's nothing wrong with having some debt. Yes, if it can be avoided, avoid it. Because debt indeed can be enslaving in ways you have never imagined. And a lot of people have recently learned that. But sometimes it just can't be avoided if one is going to reasonably survive and live. 
Next, notice that our personal financial difficulties and discomfort, that's no excuse for not paying back what we borrowed. And finally, notice that whether we choose to borrow or circumstances almost force us to, we are obligated in God's eyes to repay it. If that means we have to sell what is dearest and most valuable to us because we have no other way, that's what we do. The first part of what we have is supposed to belong to God. But when we're in debt, it winds up belonging to somebody else. Somebody we owe. Only after they are satisfied are we entitled to keep some for ourselves. And that applies even if you're a poor widow. Just like this unnamed Hebrew woman in our story. Nowhere does Elisha or that Hebrew woman imply that she ought not have to repay. Now naturally, particularly as it applies to a creditor who is a God-fearer, Mercy needs to always be considered as part of the equation. But such mercy is a matter matter between the creditor and God. It's not for society. It's not for the debtor to force that upon the creditor. Nor is bankruptcy necessarily wrong for a debtor. Because in fact, most typical bankruptcy follows the pattern given here whereby a debtor's possessions are confiscated and sold, the creditors are paid off with the proceeds, and if there's anything left, the debtor receives it. Well, this next story begins in verse 8, and it occurs in the town of Shunem, in the tribal territory of Issachar. And the family that is the focus of this story, and probably the town in general, had maintained a sense of piety before the Lord. Even in the face of the times in Israel when, when, when idolatry and darkness ruled the day. And, and it also characterized the lifestyles of those ten northern Israelite tribes. This is why we find Elisha there. And why verse 8 says, whenever he passed by, which means he came by on a regular basis. The story set up is that a prominent woman in Shunem offered Elisha hospitality. Notice, by the way, that our first two stories, central characters, are both pious women. And Elisha deals respectfully and tenderly with them. So our first story was of a poor woman. This one now concerns a rich woman. In fact, she offered Elisha this same hospitality any time he was in her town and went so far as to ask her husband to build a guest quarters atop the roof of their home and then to furnish it nicely. Well, on one trip to the town, after Elisha had settled into his little private apartment, he told his servant Gehazi, to ask the woman to come to him. Now she came and he spoke to her through his servant. 
Now exactly why he communicated with her this way is not universally agreed upon. Maybe it was out of concern for her modesty. It may have been that while Elisha was inside his apartment, she stood outside and Gehazi was, was at the door repeating what his master said so she could hear it. It may have been something else altogether. It's just not clear. Elisha wishes to repay her sincere kindness. And he asks what he may do for her and specifically wonders if perhaps he can take a message to the king or to the army commander on her behalf. Now that might sound a little bit odd, but it's not. Elisha could have the audience of the king or army commander any time he wanted to. So exalted was he in the land. Now despite King Yehoram's deep dislike of him, he was also he also recognized that Elisha was God's prophet to him and the anointed king of Israel uh, rather as the anointed king of Israel so he was kind of stuck with having to hear from Elisha from time to time now this woman was an aristocrat and Elisha assumed she and her husband must have occasional dealings with the kingdom's elite she answered no she was happy to dwell among her own people in other words, this was a polite way of saying she had no dealings with the king or the government and she just preferred to keep it that way. Thank you very much. Now it was to her credit that she was content with what she had. She had no desire to rub elbows with the political class because they were also great idolaters. Since she frustrated Elisha's effort to reward her, he turns to a servant. And he asks if he knows of something that she needs. And he informed his master that she was barren. And that it was too late anyway. Because her husband was also too old for them to have children together. I mean, one can kind of hear the echoes of the Abraham and Sarah story in this narrative. And either she had gone for a time, as Elisha discussed this matter with Gehazi, or she was asked to move from outside of the doorway of Elisha's apartment as the conversation continued to the inside. That's implied by verse 15. And this time, Elisha spoke directly to her. And he told her that she would have a son by this time next year. And in her shock, she was in denial and asked Elisha not to tell her such a thing because it couldn't possibly be true. We have to understand that this was not a young, barren woman. This was a woman probably beyond childbearing years with a husband that was also incapable. That didn't change the fact that she lived every day in a state of shame because she wasn't able to give her husband a son for an heir, nor could she fulfill the order of the Abrahamic covenant to be fruitful and multiply. Her first reaction seemed to be that this was almost a cruel promise from a trusted friend that had absolutely no rational way of coming about. It was terribly hurtful. It was a stressful moment for her. But of course, by a miracle of God, she did conceive and bear a son. The child grew and was old enough to work out in the field with his father when something dreadful happened. The child was probably of nearly bar mitzvah age because the Hebrew word used to identify him is that he was an elam, 
Now the Hebrew scriptures use a number of terms to describe the growing up process of a child. And it begins with a yeled, an infant. And the next stage of development is a yonek, a child who is fed from the breast but is no longer an infant. And after that came an olel, who's not weaned but is now eating solid food regularly. Next comes a gamel, a fully weaned child of five years of age, and after that is a tough, which is a, a, a wide range, starting at around age six, and, and who is still under the supervision of his mother. Then we have the boy in our story, who is an LM, meaning he's probably 11 or 12, and, but now his supervision has been transferred over to his father. Thus we find this 11 or 12 year old is out in the field doing meaningful work with his father when suddenly he starts screaming that his head is in excruciating pain. His father probably assumed it was a bad headache due to the heat and he had him immediately taken to his mother who cradled the boy in her arms until the boy suddenly died about noon. It is clear that Elisha was not there. So without explanation, she takes her lifeless son and she lays him on Elisha's bed up on the roof. Why? I've not heard of one good explanation other than perhaps for the simplest one. Elisha was a holy man. It just seemed as though laying her son's corpse on the bed of a holy man was the most she could do to retain any hope. You know, it's not unlike having a tragic situation happen to us. And we find ourselves drawn to go and pray alone at our synagogue or our church building. There's no real rational explanation for doing that. Because God isn't any closer or further away from us no matter where we are. But somehow it is comforting. So she called to her husband to get her a donkey. And and a servant to go with her because she's going to ride to where she's sure Elisha must be and then return with him. Now since he was at Mount Carmel, it would have been around a 15 to 20 mile donkey ride. Her husband's confused. He says, it's not Rosh Hodesh. It's not Shabbat, New Moon, Sabbath. So he didn't understand her purpose for rushing to Elisha at this moment of great tragedy. Had it been Shabbat or Rosh Hodesh, he could perhaps see why she would want to go to him because those were traditional times to seek great men for wisdom and for guidance. And it's also probable that on those appointed times, Elisha taught those few folks of Israel who still had a hunger for God's word. So he doesn't associate the boy's death to her instinct to seek God's prophet. Now our complete Jewish Bible and most other English translations tell us that her response to her husband is it is well or peace to thee. And frankly, while from a literal sense that is accurate, but from a dynamic meaning standpoint, it's not. The Hebrew word being used is shalom. And no doubt, in this case, 
It's being used in the sense of goodbye. See, this was a distraught mother. She was intent on getting help and she would brook no delay, not even from her well-meaning husband who wanted to discuss things a little bit further. In verses 24 and 25, she tells her personal attendant essentially not to get in her way and that nothing was going to slow her journey to find that great prophet. And as she approached Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her coming. So he sends Gehazi to ask her if everything's okay. After all, it was unusual that such an aristocratic woman would come to such a remote place on her own to seek him out. And she tells him, according to our English translations, it is well. Again, we're translating the word shalom. And without, de- without doubt, the intent's not to tell Gekhazi that everything's just fine back home. It's that shalom is a standard greeting that can also mean little more than hello. <laughs> this woman was hurrying to get to Elisha. She had no interest in waiting, wasting her time talking to the assistant flunky. So she quickly disposed of him. She ran to where Elisha was standing and fell at his feet, literally grabbing his ankles in desperation. The servant moved to push her away and Elisha rebuked him, saying that it's obvious that she is in terrible distress. But Elisha is human. He's not a sorcerer. And he, so he, he says he has no idea what her problem is because Jehovah hasn't revealed it to him. And since he hadn't received a divine oracle that told him of her coming, he also didn't receive divine instructions on how or even if to proceed to help her. The grieving mother, who had, who had at one time dared not to believe Elisha's prediction that she would conceive this child, now stands before him livid that she had never asked him for such a thing. And now, after giving her heart to her only child, he is taken from her by the same God who gave him to her. She didn't want to have a child from that dead womb that she could only love for a few years just to lose him at such a young age to death. It was just all so painful, so unfair. Surprisingly, Elisha's rather tepid response was to send his servant to the woman's home. His servant was to take Elisha's staff. A staff represents authority. And go as his substitute. But the woman had no trust in substitutes. She knew that whatever miracle was possible came from Jehovah through Elisha, not through a servant of Elisha's who carried a hunk of dead wood with him. So she told Elisha she wasn't about to leave his side. Can you picture this? In fact, she vows in God's holy name she was sticking to Elisha like glue. Evidently, Elisha believed her. So he accompanied her back to Shunem. 
Well, this raises a good practical question for all believers. What are we to do when immediate action is required, but we have no clear instructions from God? Do we do nothing? Do we wait until we're satisfied that we do have a clear answer? Or do we act using the patterns and the wisdom that we have learned from studying God's Word and using it within the gifting that we each know we've been given by means of the Holy Spirit? There's no indication that the boy's mother had been told anything from the Lord, but her experiences and her knowledge of the Torah made it absolutely clear to her that if her son could be helped, it could only come through the presence of the man of God. And it is abundantly clear from the scripture passage that Elisha had been given no direction whatsoever from God about her. So essentially, his divine instruction came from the circumstance of this determined woman insisting that either vertically or horizontally Elisha was going with her. I've personally found and I think it lines up biblically the ways such as we see happening in this story ways that are in accordance with God's general laws and commandments are usually how we discover God's will for most of our situations. It is rare that at such times that we'll get a special message of divine instruction. And that is why it's so important to not just experience God, as wonderful as that is, but also to carefully learn His written word so that our instincts become trained to react properly. Gai Chazi hurried ahead of the aged Elisha with Elisha's staff in his hand and he got there a few hours ahead of the elderly Elisha and the boy's mother. He placed that staff next to the boy's head. But alas, it was obvious the boy was stone cold dead. And naturally that presence of the wooden staff did nothing. Next week we'll see what transpires as Elisha and that frantic mother arrive.